0: My friend, Dr. Joe Matera has written a brand new book, Jesus Principles. We're going to dive
1: into that today.
0: Welcome, welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire. Michael Brown, delighted and blessed to be with you. And the phone lines are open. First half hour, I'll take your calls on any subject that relates at all to the Line of Fire. 866-34-TRUTH. It's 866-348-7884. Howard, our faithful call screener on most days, will be grabbing your calls momentarily. He just had a computer crash. So, Howard, I trust you're there and ready to service our callers, 866-348-7884, the bottom of the hour. I'm going to bring on my good friend and coworker, Dr. Joe Matera, talking about his brand new book, The Jesus Principles Lead a Life That Even Death Can't Stop. Before we get into your calls, before I talk to Dr. Joe, I just want to emphasize an important doctrinal point. I got a a few questions yesterday by some friends and grads and colleagues asking about a message they had heard that denied the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus took the punishment for our sins, that Jesus was punished with divine judgment so that we would not have to. Again, the fundamental word for me in all of this is substitution— it's a word that jumped at me decades ago as I was writing an outreach track for my friend Sid Roth, the Jewish outreach track, and it was, it was going to be short, just a few pages long or a mini book, and he you know, said, Mike, we really need this. We want to get this out. I said, I know. I, I just – I can't – I was waiting for the right sense of what to write. When I finally got it, the word that just jumped out to me was substitution and tried to open up the gospel through Old Testament sources, for a Jewish person pointing to Jesus as the one who took our place. Five years ago, I debated Pastor Brian Zond on this, and, and his position was the idea that God would punish his son on the cross, made him into a monster. He was a monster God. And I said, no, it's monster man. Our sins are monstrous, and that's the price that the son paid for our redemption. And to me, It's one of the most fundamental gospel truths that Jesus took our place on the cross, that Jesus paid for our sins. We sinned. He died. We were guilty. He was punished. We received his righteousness. He received our guilt, the most extraordinary transaction that ever took place in the love of God. And as Paul explains in Romans 3, this allowed God to be just and the justifier of the one who believed in Jesus. He was being just, and then he was saying there is a penalty for sin. But now he was justifying the one who believed in Jesus because the payment was made, and therefore in justice he could say, you're free to go. You say, but how is that justice? That's his own son that paid for our sin. Ah, that's justice and mercy together at the same time, all rolled into one. And I see this taught most clearly in the Bible, in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. In other words, this is fundamental. We have it in the whole atonement system of Israel, where the animal the animal without blemish would take the place of the guilty Israelite sinner. We have those principles there. We, we see on the Day of Atonement that, that one goat would be slain and the blood would be offered for the sins of the people of clans. And then another goat, the so-called scapegoat, they would confess the sins of the nation over that goat. They would carry the sins into the wilderness. So substitution, substitution. The Israelite confessing his sin, the animal dying, the priest laying hands on the scapegoat, transferring the sin and guilt of the nation, the animal then carrying that away, all as, as prototypes, as, as foreshadowings of what Jesus would do on the cross. Even the role of the high priest, and on and, and a certain level, a sin-bearing role, a substitutionary role, although not in the fullness that took place on the cross, now that reaches its fulfillment through the Son of God. I just want to read a few passages to you here. Um, Let me grab these. So starting in Isaiah 53, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. We sinned. He died. We were guilty. He took our punishment. Romans 5, 6, the Messiah died for the ungodly. Romans 8, what the law could not do, since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in flesh like ours under sin's domain, and as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirements would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, so here's the point. God condemns sin on the cross in his Son. In in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, it says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This was in the perfect mercy and justice of God. The The righteous son, who is of eternal value and worth and can pay for the sins of the whole world by his perfection and righteousness, dies in our place. And as he suffers the judgment on the cross and, and suffers, spiritually speaking, separation from God, on the one hand, God is always God and the Father and Son always in communion. On another level... There there is some displacement with the Son saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just left me abandoned to die on the cross. He's pointing us to Psalm twenty-two and the sufferings he is enduring. And he is doing this so that the Father can say, Everything has been paid for at the cross. Everything has been purchased at the cross. The wrath of God in that sense has been satisfied. It is only those who reject God's mercy at the cross who will suffer God's wrath in the future. Uh, to me, it's, it's a really important foundational doctrine. You say, yeah, but you know, I've, I've read Christus Victor and, and the main emphasis of the cross is the victory of Jesus and things like that. Uh, there is great truth to different parts of what's called Christus Victor. There are various theories of atonement. Different ones have different aspects of truth, but you cannot get away from substitutionary atonement. To me, if you get away from substitutionary atonement, you get away from the heart and soul of the gospel message. So these other aspects of atonement are are important, and we learn from them, the Christus Victor view and other things like that. We learn from them. They supplement our view of the cross and what happened with the death and resurrection of Jesus. But just don't displace substitutionary atonement. When you do that, according to my understanding of Scripture, you are displacing a foundational doctrine of great importance. All right. I am going to go right to the phones because, again, the bottom of the hour, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Joe Matera. By the way, by the way, you say, I can't call in. No problem. An hour and five minutes from now. So 75 minutes, 60, (sighs) only 60 minutes in an hour. Note to self, 60 minutes an hour, even after the time change here we fell back, right? Gained an hour over the weekend. Okay. 65 minutes from now, we'll be doing a live YouTube chat. So I'll be taking your questions on YouTube. That means just post them. Whatever questions you have. Maybe if you're at your work, you can post and you won't have to call in. So 65 now, 64 minutes from now, we'll be doing the YouTube chat, taking questions there. All right. Let us go to the phone starting in Houston, Texas. Ryan, welcome to the line of fire.
2: Thank you, Dr. Brown. It's uh, great to be here. My uh, question has to do with, I'm meeting with an agnostic friend of mine. He wants to study the historical reliability of the New Testament, and so we're going to be studying that in the upcoming weeks. But he uh, he brought up something he was curious about, if there are any supernatural uh, uh, testimonies, to, uh, or actually, i say extra-biblical sources saying that Jesus... Did supernatural work such as in the Talmud or, or anything like that, so I was curious if, if there was any kind of substantial evidence for Jesus doing supernatural work
0: yeah so bear in mind you, right you don't have contemporary, excuse me contemporary sources and reports like you didn't have thirty different news channels you know with video commentary and things like that but You do have later Talmudic references. There's a debate as to whether it's talking about Jesus or not, because the chronology is not perfect. But what is constantly attested about him is that he was a miracle worker. They had to say he was a counterfeit miracle worker. And in in what's called the Tosefta, which comes from, oh, the early third century, so about 200 years after Jesus— there are clear accounts about his followers who were known for healing the sick and driving out demons. So it's, it's, it, these are other Jews who did this. So there are other references. They're negative. In other words, they're, they're saying, don't let them pray for you even though they can heal you, that kind of thing. Or yet yeah, Jesus did these things, but he did them by occult power or by the power of other gods or things like that. But it seems his reputation was so established in this way that critical scholars genu- generally say that what we, what we know for sure is that he was associated with healing and driving out demons and that he was crucified and his, his followers claimed that he rose from the dead. Even the most critical scholars tend to say this is pretty much undeniable what was said about him by his followers and then you have attestation from the outside that others said, yeah, this is what is said about him as well. Um, And then you have, you know, the apocryphal accounts outside of the New Testament, but those are written by believers, and that just, those get more and more far-fetched? Sure. You know, one thing that may be Uh, interesting... Is there a... Go go ahead.
2: Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, is there a a good place online you would recommend where they would, uh, I guess, have these sources listed out for one, and two, do you think it's Actually, I'm in mean, a good argument, and overall, like, in favor of Jesus. I realize it's not the, the nail in, in the coffin, but you, as an apologetic strategy, is it, uh, is, is it good to, to bring this up, like, with a, a seeker agnostic like my friend?
0: It, it can be worthwhile. Uh, ultimately, if they're not going to believe the Bible, the question is, why are they going to believe the external reports? You know, they could just be agnostic about everything— but yeah, it is, it is worth saying that he did have a reputation as a miracle worker in the ancient world, that, that he was widely attested to be a miracle worker, even by critics outside of the New Testament. That's, that's worthwhile. And then I would bring him to contemporary accounts of miracles that are documented, scientifically documented, and say, well, consider these. You know, Randy Clark's book, Eyewitness to Miracles, is a useful one. If you want to get in the big subject, okay. it's Craig, Craig Keener's Two Volumes on Miracles. If you want to really learn and study yourself, Craig Keener, Miracles in Two Volumes. But otherwise, just get online, type in Jesus Outside the New Testament, and you'll get reference to some books and sources that, that you'll find helpful in this regard. Hey, may the Lord use you as you speak to Ryan, and may, may God himself convict his heart and open his eyes. Thanks, man. Appreciate it.
1: The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. Right before the show started, I posted on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, a picture, one of the favorite pictures that we get to take when a new book comes out. Uh, Job commentaries stacked high on my desk. Uh, all with a piece of paper then with someone's name and address. and So those are personalized. Those are the first, I don't know, maybe 125 books that came in from the first edition, from the first printing. Uh, We number them. So, you know, some like We're Breaking the Stronghold of Food, I think, or excuse me, Breaking the Stronghold of Food. Nancy and I signed maybe 450, 500 books. Here the Job Commentary, maybe 125 books we were thrilled to do. So uh, that means they're on their way out. Everything's getting shipped out. So if you ordered them, some of you ordered multiple copies to give out as gifts to the family. We really pray that you'll be blessed by the commentary. And once you get it and you're reading it, post a review on Amazon. If you ordered straight from us or you order in Christian Book or somewhere else or got it at the Apologetics Conference in Charlotte last month, uh, go ahead, post a review on Amazon, let others know if the book has been a blessing. Same with any of our books. If they've been a blessing to you, post a review on Amazon. That encourages others uh, to look at the book and find out more. Plus, many times we have people, because of the controversial nature of things we address, they will just post negative, bogus reviews, hostile reviews, even if they haven't read the book or they just hate me, so they post something negative. So the, the positive, truthful reviews help balance out those dishonest ones. And by the way, if someone doesn't like a book, that's their prerogative. I'm talking about the ones that are just nasty, don't even read it, just don't like you. So this way... Honest, good reviews help balance those out. All right, eight 866 right, truth. We go back to the phones in Georgia. Jonathan, welcome to the line of fire.
3: Hey, Doctor Brown, how you doing?
0: Very well, thank you.
3: I'm um, really. Uh, I'm just want first. I wanted to say I just, I'm very appreciative of your uh, your work and your resources on Hypergrace. Thank and, you. Uh, but I'm trying. I'm I'm kind of struggling putting this question to words, but something i'm kind of noticing and you know maybe this is, you know maybe i'm i'm probably i'm probably not the only one but like when the the differences between uh you know let's just say you know this the stuff you present and then you know hyper grace with what those preachers present a lot of it sounds just like semantics to me like specifically i was thinking about progressive sanctification mm-hmm. you know how most of the time they most of them like andrew farley he doesn't he doesn't like progressive sanctification he'll say you can't be more holy than you you know, you really are stuff like that, but you know, at the same time, he still says, "But throughout your life, you're renewing your mind and and things like that." I mean, have you, I mean uh, does that make any sense?
0: <laughs> yeah, some of it is semantics, but some of it's very serious and deep differences. Now, I was pleased to know when I met with with Pastor Joseph Prince almost three years ago in Singapore that, and he's he's would be the the best known grace or hyper grace teacher in the world today that he says you can't be more righteous, but you can be more holy. So he believes in progressive sanctification and would take issue, say, with Pastor Clark Witten, who says that the the teaching of progressive sanctification is a spiritually murderous lie. Uh, He he would differ with that. So the first thing is, if it's just semantics, why do some of the hyper-grace teachers get so hyper over it? Why do they say it's a spiritually murderous lie? Why do they say you're missing, you're, you're mixing works with, with grace, you're mis- mixing flesh with spirit. So if it's just semantics, why get so exercised over it? That's the first thing. The second thing is, is this. It is very easy to, to say, well, I'm perfectly holy. I just have to renew my mind to understand that rather than recognize, okay, I'm living in sin right now and this is displeasing to God. This is breaking my fellowship with God. This is detrimental to my whole life in God. And and God calls me to be holy. God calls me to come out and be separate. In other words, there are distinct things we are called to do in obedience to God, to grow in holiness. And if I just think it's a matter of renewing my mind or accepting a certain spiritual reality, you better believe that's not just semantics. Plus, the larger hyper-grace package that the Holy Spirit won't convict me of sin because I'm, I'm already perfectly holy and my sins have already been forgiven, and I, I, there's no need for me to confess my sin to God and ask for forgiveness because I'm already completely forgiven, those are dangerous doctrines that can easily lead to the flesh and backsliding, and we see it constantly. Even though the hyper-grace uh, frenzy, just everyone getting into it, that's definitely calmed down. And, and then some hyper-grace teachers have modified and clarified some of their teaching. We, you know, there, there was somebody I cite in the book, uh, uh, hyper grace pastor she and her husband pastors come you know they were assembly of god charismatic pentecostal they came into this amazing new revelation of hyper grace bashed me were nasty the wife was nasty to me over differences when i asked someone did they know him? i said oh yeah they're, they become atheists they don't believe in god anymore so i i look at this as real real possible uh open door to backsliding, not just semantics, but real error and real serious error potentially.
3: Okay. Uh, can I, I got time to
0: ask one more question. About yeah, go ahead. Semantics. Go ahead. Yeah, so the, the, the conviction was a different one, was another
3: one that seemed pretty close to just being semantics because I've heard, uh, all the ones I've really looked at is Paul Ellis, Andrew Barley, and a little bit of Joseph Prince. Uh, but they kind of say, you know, there, he doesn't you know, convict you or make you feel guilty, but uh, he does. you, you are Greek.
0: You know what I mean? Well, the, the word that's used in the Greek is convict. It's it's the exact same word used in John 16. Uh, so however you want to translate it, he rebukes you, he corrects you. Uh, and, and look, some of them have only started to teach this because of, of what we exposed in some of the error. You know, They may say, no, we were always teaching it, but certainly it became a lot clearer when they were saying, well, we have to you know, rebut what, what Brown is saying, and he's wrong on this point or that point. Um, in point of fact, I've talked to enough hyper-grace practitioners, with what I believe is different than what, than what they believe. So let's say that I'm doing something, I've hardened my heart against someone, right? They sinned against me, they came and asked for forgiveness, I'm like, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm saying, no, I'm not going to. So I'm walking in bitterness towards them and unforgiveness towards them. The Holy Spirit's going to make me feel uncomfortable. The Holy Spirit's going to make me understand I am in sin. And, and in terms of my fellowship, Jesus is explicit that the Father will not forgive my sins, not in terms of my salvation, but in terms of my fellowship. It will break my fellowship. It, it, it will hurt my relationship with God at that moment. And when I turn from it, I'll experience freedom and forgiveness and and grace flooding my life, it's very clear. And Jesus says in, in Revelation 3:19, "As many as I love, I rebuke." That's the same Greek word for convict. I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So, what what are they? No, we're we're not condemned. I mean, we've made that clear decades before I ever addressed hyper grace. That there's no condemnation in the Messiah, and that there's a massive difference between conviction and condemnation. But if they're saying the same thing I'm saying, then what's their big revelation? What's the big teaching? What's so liberating? What's so old and dead and destructive about what I believe and so wonderful and new and beautiful about what they believe? Right? If it's just semantics or you know, a yeah. little, little different angle. And trust me, I've interacted with enough folks to know it's anything but sem- semantics. Anything but. Yeah. Yeah, I
3: think, I, think diff- I was thinking that. I, I do have this one buddy. He kind of he bounces back and forth. If he believes some hyper grace but not all of it so, with me and him sometimes it doesn't come down to semantics but i definitely can see a lot in their books where it doesn't
0: <laughs> yeah and again that's the whole thing they claim it's the new grace reformation you know truths being revealed yeah. you know at the clark Witten book you know that or, or others you know john crowder and saying this is you know the reformation didn't get it right and by the way i don't think the reformation was perfect and obviously we keep growing and learning in the Lord, but it's like we just like Luther got his revelation on faith. We've got our revelation on grace and a lot of stuff that's put out is downright dangerous and it's led to heresy. Even some, some of the people that I quoted in the book authors have now gone heretical and, and, and two came to me privately and said, you know, I, I, I don't preach the same thing or I, I see your point, And so we're just trying to help. But, uh, let them keep modifying it so that it ends up. Let it be semantics in the end. If, if they if they fix some of the error in their position, that would be that would be wonderful. All right. Thank you for the call. These are serious issues. If you haven't read Hyper Grace, you'll see why. 34 truth. Uh, let's go to California, Ted. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh,
4: thank you, Doctor Bell. Um, two quick questions. One, I'm I'm an ex- Catholic, but I still struggle in the current church that I go with. When they do communion, I still struggle because they don't think communion there. Because I struggle with my, my, my soul part, Catholic teaching that is saying that this is the true blood and Christ, the true body and blood of Christ, and I'm trying to struggle with the part of is Jesus being literal when at the Last Supper and what he says that unless you eat of my flesh and drink
0: of my blood. right, so here's the question. Was he? No, of course not. He was sitting there physically with his flesh and blood, right? If it was literal, he'd say, chew on my arm. If it was literal, he'd say, bite my finger. If it was literal, he'd say, all right, let me cut my arm here and suck the blood. Of course it wasn't literal. Of course it was symbolic from the first moment. That's the whole thing. You're eating the bread, which stands for my flesh. You're you're drinking the, the wine, which stands for my blood. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, you show the Lord's death. So you're pointing back to it until he comes. So no, it's, it's, with all respect to my Catholic friends, he didn't teach transubstantiation. Look, while he was on the earth, he said, my flesh is, is meat indeed and my, my blood is drink indeed. Of course, it's metaphorical. Of course, it's symbolic. And not only so, at the end of John 6, he says, what are you going to do if I ascend to heaven? What are you going to do if I, I ascend to heaven and I'm not here. The flesh profits nothing. It was what am I gonna what are you gonna do when I'm not here physically? Obviously, I'm not talking about literally eating my body and literally drinking my blood. Obviously, it was symbolic from the first moment, as you just explained. He gave them the bread. He gave them the cup. Those symbolized his body and blood. Hey, Ted, I'm out of time I've got a guest coming on. Andy, sorry, can't get you, but Andy, I'm gonna be in Kansas City. God willing. Tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week, then Newton, North Carolina, on Saturday. Don't miss these meetings.
3: It's fire we want for fire we
1: It's the line of fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34 Truth. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends.
0: 45 minutes from now, so 4.15 Eastern Standard Time, we will be doing a YouTube chat. So that means all your questions, comments, concerns I'll be answering on YouTube. You don't call in on those. You just post your questions, comments, so we get to cover a ton of ground. That'll start less than 45 minutes from now, 4.15 Eastern Standard Time. I'm not taking calls now because I have on the phone with me my friend, Dr. Joseph Matera, His brand new book, The Jesus Principles, lead a life that even death can't stop. Uh, Dr. Matera is a leader's leader. He is respected in the city of New York where he's pastored for decades in Brooklyn. He's respected in the region as a leader of leaders, but not just in America, around the world. And in this book, The Jesus Principles, Dr. Matera opens up for us principles about leadership, and the greatest leader the world has ever seen, and a leader who led very differently than many others lead. Uh, Joe, welcome back to the Line of Fire. Thanks for joining us.
4: Well, Dr. Brown, it's always a joy to be with you. I appreciate the enormous amount of output that you contribute to the body of Christ with your discernment, your articulation of culture, and the application of Scripture to contemporary events. So uh, kudos to you and the great work you do for all of us.
0: Well, thanks. I appreciate the kind words. So, you've been in ministry for decades, you've been teaching, training leaders, you've written a lot of books, many articles. What is it that got you in your life in ministry to this particular book and this particular theme?
4: Yes. Um, When we began evangelizing in the at-risk area of Sunset Park, Brooklyn, uh, intuitively I just began making disciples. didn't even realize I was doing that, had a lot of young men, go with me when I'd preach on the subway trains or the Staten Island Ferry, or i just pull a group of them together to uh, see how they were doing, pray with them. And then I was radically impacted by 2 Timothy 2-2, where Paul told Timothy to take people aside who were faithful, able, and were able to communicate the gospel and put the bulk of his time into those people And that's what I began to do. And so we started making disciples based on those we'd led to Christ in the streets. And out of that disciple-making agenda, uh, a church arose several years later. So our church really came out of this heartbeat of of pouring into people one-on-one and making disciples.
0: Mm. So even though Jesus spoke to multitudes, and even though you may have good-sized crowds you speak to— or various venues where you minister the key thing is to pour into those that are going to become leaders train others pour into those who are going to pour into to others so if if you break down for us say some of the key things you've learned about the Jesus principles that you unpack in this new book by that title the Jesus principles what what are your top 2 or 3 Principles of Jesus that you have learned that you have now implemented, seeking to follow His example.
4: Yes, well, I think there's a huge shift coming out of the Body of Christ. I wrote the book seven years ago and was were, were not was not able to publish it for some reason, and now's the perfect time because I believe what the Lord is highlighting, highlighting globally is He's challenging the church to go from a convert driven to a discipleship driven model to go from event-driven and program-driven to process-driven. And if you look at what Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, he said, Follow me, and I will make you to become a fisher of men. So that's the transliteration, the Greek. To become, meaning there's a process involved before you become that which God assigned you to walk in. And in this case, a fisher of men means an influencer, somebody who can influence people for God, to catch men for God. And so To Become frames the whole book, The Jesus Principles, and then we unpack how he made them, who they became, how he released greatness, purpose, identity, and their assignment by taking them through a process that came not just with a Bible study, but him calling them to be with him, doing life with them, uh, which means that discipleship is caught, not just taught. He didn't say, follow me, come to a Bible study once a week for an hour, or come to church for two hours on Sunday. He said, follow me. That's powerful. That means you can't separate doing life with somebody and discipleship. It takes an investment of your life into the life of another person, and their life into your life. Uh, It's a reciprocal kind of arrangement. If they're not committed to me, I can't disciple them, so it's vice versa.
0: And and you, you have in the Jesus Principles book, you've got uh, 18 chapters, uh, understanding your God-given identity, unleashing your potential, going to Jerusalem, understanding affirmation. Jesus affirmed and Jesus corrected. How, how do these things go hand in hand?
4: Well, as he was doing life with them, uh, he had the ability to affirm them. He saw what they were to be in the future. For example, he told Peter, um, Your name is Cephas, but I'm going to change your name now to uh, You shall be called Cephas, rather. You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. That's in John one forty two, meaning he looked at who he was, and gave him a new identity, there was a a recalibration inside of him that took place as a result of being with Jesus. So there's a process that changes how you view yourself that enables you to walk in the destiny that God has called you to be. Uh, He did the same thing with Abram in Genesis 17. He told Abram, you're no longer to be called Abram, but you're Abraham. You are now the father of many nations. And he had to call himself that, and everyone around him called him that. For 25 years until Isaac was born, so it took a community. Uh, Jesus discipled people in the context of a community. You can't do it just one-on-one. You have to be part of a church. So uh, Abraham was constantly reminded of his destiny to be the father of many nations every time someone called him and named him. And uh, But at the same token, because Simon Peter was walking with Jesus, there was ample opportunity for Jesus to correct him. For example, when Peter uh, tried to stop him from going to the cross. Uh, Jesus actually said, get away from me, Satan, for you save it at things of men, not the things of God. So Jesus had no problem correcting, rebuking, uh, in love, his disciples, but at the same token, he told them who they were called to be, he changed their identity, he affirmed them. And even after Peter disowned Christ, Jesus looked at him with eyes of love tells us in Luke chapter 22, and he prayed for him, and in John chapter 21, he said, if you love me, Peter, feed my sheep. He kept on affirming him even after he fell. So it's very powerful, this relationship.
0: Yeah, and obviously there's, again, with all this commitment, serious commitment, and this is not the kind of thing that you could just do by kind of having a social media relationship from a distance or seeing somebody, you know, every couple of months for an hour or two. There's a serious investment, but without that, we're not going to see the serious progress and transformation that we we long to see. Uh, You talk about misconceptions uh, about leadership that we often have. You know, Jesus told his disciples, hey, the the, the Gentiles, the pagans, the nations do it a certain way. We don't do it the same way. What are— principles of Jesus' leadership that that would be considered revolutionary in the eyes of many, very different, innovative in the eyes of many?
4: Well, you know, first of all, he had no army, and yet he conquered nations. He had no military, and kings feared him. He didn't write any books, and yet more books have been written about him than anybody else. So whatever he did was definitely uh, inverted kind of leadership from what we see in the U.S., and, and the nations of the world today, and what we value. And so what he was talking about, as is recorded in Mark chapter 10, is the fact that the kings lorded over their subjects. But he said, if you want to be a leader in my kingdom, you need to serve. That is, it's bottom up. You don't get elevated if you have a position in the church. You're really being made lower. The more of a position, or if you want to use that term, um, title, or responsibility I like better, or the more stewardship God has given you, whether it's apostolic, prophetic, etc., the more low you should be, the more of a servant you should be. It's not an elevation, as so many people in the body body of Christ call it. It's more of a, hey, i got more responsibility, and uh, I've got to be a greater servant. So that is one of the most dramatic illustrations of how he led that is so different from today, As a matter of fact, the word servant is used in the New Testament uh, dozens of times, maybe over 200 times, yet the word leader is only used twice. But in the U.S., if you want to have a conference on being a servant, I'm sure you'll have very few people attend, but if you say we're going to have a leadership conference, mm. you may have a packed house. And it's so different from the way Jesus viewed influence. Influence comes from meeting felt needs from serving others. Uh, It's not a top-down approach, but it's a bottom-up approach of loving, of serving, and meeting the needs of people.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, flesh-killing. It's always flesh-killing, but then uh, short-term pain, long-term reward. You've got four chapters entitled, or five, actually, the power of. The power of failure, power of delegation, the power of prioritizing, the power of community, the power of secure leadership, I want to come back to some of these, but Joe, in order to be a servant, don't you have to be secure in your leadership?
4: Yeah, well, if you're an insecure leader, then you will be threatened when somebody you're mentoring or discipling begins to exhibit gifts that are equal to yours or even greater than yours. Jesus exalted in the fact that that we would do greater works than him. As is, as is recorded in John fourteen twelve, 12. Um, an insecure leader is a bottleneck of his own movement. He will not want people to be in competition with him. He will be jealous if he's a pastor, for example, if someone could preach as good as him or better, um, or if someone is a great problem solver, uh, and if someone has solutions or relates to people as good or better than them. But the true kingdom leader is somebody who's so secure in themselves that they're Uh, just wanting to advance God's kingdom, to advance God's glory, and uh, it's not about them, it's about the kingdom it's about Jesus, everything's Jesus and when you're secure in Christ, uh, you just exult in the fact that, wow all these people I'm pouring into are doing greater works than me and and in generations from now when I'm not here on the earth, as Abel was dead and yet still speaks according to Hebrews 11 so we will continue to speak Through the people
0: that we influence. Amen. All right, friends, the book, The Jesus Principle, more to come. Also, go to Joseph Matera, M A T T E R A, JosephMatera.com. Sign up for the resources there.
1: It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: All right, correct website, josephmatera.org. I get folks giving out mine wrongly all the time with .com. It's .org, right? Joseph Matera, M-A-T-T-E-R-A, .org lots of materials there resources you can sign up for many free resources there as well and and what i love about dr matera's material many things i love there's always maturity and depth and scriptural soundness and wisdom but what he lays out is practical it's not like okay now i read the book how do i do it the book will tell you how to do it and, and share heart as as well And, uh, Joe, in in the book, you you tell the story of of a young man named Christian. You say, when I saw Christian walk into our church, I didn't see a fatherless, purposeless Hispanic teenager. I saw an emerging leader with the potential to be a world changer. Now this young man has grown into being a a key leader in many ways. How does somebody do that? How do you not just see with the natural eyes— and how do you get God's perspective? Be, because often we, we stumble and stop because what we see outwardly, the packaging isn't good or the maturity isn't there. And, and, and we kind of turn away and don't give them our time. But from God's sight, like, that's going to be a world changer. How, how do you get that vision? How do you see that?
4: Yeah. Well, part of the discipleship process is we have to see things about people that they can't see in themselves Mm. And as we grow in the Lord, as we know Scripture, as we know His heart, uh, and as we get sensitive to the Spirit through prayer and growing in discernment, we could actually get a sense of what God has called people to do and be. And uh, even just telling them to call to be a son of God, uh, you know, meaning a child of God, is revolutionary, you know, but we could see beyond that and, and show them what, things God has in store for him, to a point, you know, not in detail. And uh, when I saw a Christian, he was a fatherless young man. His father died when he was very, very young. And in part of the, the process was I had to re-father him, reparent him. He was brought up by a wonderful mother, but he didn't have a father in his life. And so we brought him in our house. He lived with us for seven or eight years. Uh, we helped get him through college age. Uh, issues, things like that, and he became a leader in our church. And um, he just became an amazing leader, amazing preacher. He was sent out about four or five years ago, and he helped plant a church that has now planted maybe five or seven churches, mm. and he does preaching seminars that denominations like Foursquare and others are now utilizing for their whole movement as he teaches churches how to raise up preachers so that they could plant more churches so he's just a phenomenal speaker but when I saw him he didn't think anything about himself and it was God's call on my life to pour into him and kind of like represent Jesus in him through me by telling him things about his life that he didn't see and and you know that's all these people need they need affirmation they need a hug They need uh, sometimes you to be a surrogate father. I mean, the mistake pastors make, a lot of times they think they can make disciples from the pulpit. Very few people will ever be disciples just by hearing messages.
3: They Mm -hmm. also
4: think they could farm somebody out and throw them into a Bible school or institutionalize discipleship by having, let's say, a Wednesday night Bible institute or Bible study. There's nothing that takes the place of being like a spiritual parent to somebody or being a big brother uh, bringing them into your life, bringing them into your family. And part of how we did it in our community is our house was always filled with people that needed more than a Sunday meeting. The gangs in my community, uh, which are not present anymore, but when we got there in the 80s, they had gangs, uh, communities that provided something for these young men 24-7, seven days a week. If all I had was a Sunday meeting on, uh, once a week, I would have lost all of them. So it has to go beyond a weekly institutional meeting or a program. Have to do life with them.
0: Yeah, friends, the new book, The Jesus Principles, Lead a Life That Even Death Can't Stop. So so Joe, just something really interesting here. You know, I'm always curious when I see who wrote endorsements to a book and you've got many great endorsements, but then who wrote the forward to the book? Some books have a forward. So I look at who wrote the forward and I wasn't familiar with the man's name. Obviously if I lived in a certain area or knew certain communities I would have known his name. But this is the very man we're speaking of that that he ends up being so transformed and discipled and growing into a calling in God that he ends up writing a forward for the book where you talk about doing these very things. I mean that's living testimony, is it not?
4: Oh yeah. I wanted him to write the forward even though presently he's not nationally known because I wanted people to see firsthand. Uh, that what is being taught in this book works. I also have my biological son, Justin, write, a forward, uh, write an endorsement so that they see it's not just spiritual children, it's your biological. Same reason why I had my son, Jason, write the foreword for my book, Walking Generational Blessings, and yep. my son, Justin, wrote a chapter in that book. So I want them to see that this stuff really works, and uh, they have to have firsthand accounts from people who have been impacted by these Jesus principles.
0: Yeah, and friends, let me encourage you to buy a copy of this book for your pastor. It'd be a great gift. And it's the kind of thing that most pastors are pastoring because they love, they love the Lord. They love the flock. They want to see people grow in the Lord. And yeah, there's a, there's a place for a Sunday morning services and worship and preaching. There's, there's a place for midweek studies, a place for Bible schools, but none of it takes the place of the deeper relational discipling. All right, friends, got to get the book for all the content, but couple more chapters. The Power of Failure. Uh, we just want to hear, like, the good stuff, all the good stories. Where, where does this fit in, the power of failure, as far as the Jesus principle of leadership training?
4: Yeah, well, as you look at Scripture, you will find real-life stories of failure. And even reading the Psalms, it talks about people being lonely, depressed, feeling like God forsook them, and yet these are inspired writ that are incorporated into the canon of Scripture just as much as Romans chapter 8 where it says, I'm more than a conqueror through Christ. So we have to have a theology of failure, of pain and and suffering, which goes along with how to make disciples. Because our disciples are going to fail. We're going to fail them. And we have to learn how to fail forward. We have to understand how God redeems every situation, even failure. We don't try to fail on purpose, obviously, but If we do, or when we do, God will use it. And can you imagine if the scientists treated failure the way we in the Church sometimes treat failure? Mm. Uh, Scientists uh, will probably fail in their hypotheses about 500 times before they prove their theory. If they threw away the previous 500 tests, they would have never come to the correct conclusions that they were looking for. And so they look at failure as part of the process, to come to a solution to prove their hypotheses. And so that's how we have to look at failure. Uh, Not that we want to fail on purpose, and we don't want our life in general to be a failure, but part of the process is by learning and walking with people, uh, we're going to use some of their faults as teaching moments to help them get to a better place in
1: Christ
0: yeah uh, and friends, you know, as even that illustration that was just given about the scientist ministered to me, just to think about the things you seek to do for God and you obey God and you take steps and you see some of the results you expect, but then you don't see others or you fall short here and yeah, the, these things that that look like stumbling blocks can become stepping stones in God. and And by the way, after uh, chapters on understanding struggle, understanding the future, understanding spiritual authority, the power of prayer, ending well, there's a chapter on transformational questions to ask yourself, and then an appendix where things are laid out really simply 10 proven effective ways for making disciples. But, Joe, chapter 18, transformational questions to ask yourself. Give me an example of one. We've got only about two and a half minutes left, but one question that I could ask myself that could be life-changing.
4: Well, I don't have the book in front of me, so I have to remember these 10 questions, but I believe one key question is, Um, Am I self-aware? Do I really know what's motivating me? Uh, Am I being led by the Spirit, or am I being driven by ambition? Um, uh, You know, where am I getting my identity from is another question. Is it Mm. coming from what I accomplish, or is it coming from who I am in Christ? So even Jesus didn't dare minister until he heard the voice of his Father say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so the Father was pleased with Jesus before he healed the sick, before he preached, before he raised the dead, before he ministered, before he even went to the cross. So he ministered out of the fact that he knew God loved him, not to try to get God to love him. And this is all part of the Jesus Principles. As a matter of fact, the thing about this book is all of the other books I've written were primarily written to leaders, This is a book for everybody, because, not just for pastors, because everybody's called to make disciples, whether in the workplace or church place. This is for every single—you could even use this to raise your children. You could use this for your business. You could use this for anything that you're doing, because the Jesus principles work in every situation, in every country, every culture, and in every generation.
0: Yeah, and, Every time and, I
4: preach on this, the books sell out. I, I've never seen any books I've written that have that, that sold out so quickly. Uh, we can't keep up with all the sales right now. It's just really hitting the mark.
0: Well, that yeah, that's always an amazing sign when you see it. And, and friends, super practical. Get it for yourself, for your own growth in the Lord, to help you make disciples of others. It, it's the calling that we all share, and there's no calling more important than that. And then... Get a copy for your pastor as a gift as well. Dr. Joe Matera, the website, Joseph Matera, M-A-T-T-E-R-A.org. Thanks for being with us, man. May the Lord bless this book.
4: It's a joy to be with you. Thank you,
0: Michael. God bless. All right, Bye.